I'm thrilled to introduce Jermaine Greer and John Bell for this session to talk about women in Shakespeare and what 21st century audiences want from them. And there really couldn't be two more qualified people. Jermaine Greer is, of course, one of the towering figures of modern feminism, the female eunuch. remains as bracing and relevant today as it was when it was first published in 1969 and she's just as cross and just as outspoken. <laughs> it's great. And throughout her illustrious career, Germaine has engaged deeply and continuously with Shakespeare. Her 1968 doctoral thesis was on the subject of love and marriage in Shakespeare's early comedies. She published a book, a book on Shakespeare's plays in 1986 and another entitled Shakespeare's Wife in 2007. It's such an honour too to introduce John Bell as he celebrates the 25th year of Bell Shakespeare and he is truly one of Australia's... <laughs> he is one of our artistic jewels and as co-artistic director of one of our favourite, they're all favourites, resident companies, the Bell Shakespeare Company, who is currently performing As You Like It in here. And as well as doing that, John Bell is also currently directing um, Tosca by Opera Australia. So his presence is felt everywhere. And I now hand over to John to ask Jermaine some questions and ideally to disagree with her a bit because she needs that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Louise. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, Jermaine. Thank you. Let's start with a pretty obvious uh, starting point. Shakespeare's um, remarkable creation of so many great female roles to be played by men, teenage boys, young men, mature men, older men for the character roles. Uh, do you imagine that he would have felt that as a, a handicap? And do you think that he might have handled those roles differently had he had female actors to work with in his company? Uh, well, I think it's difficult to imagine that he would have thought of it as a handicap because the important thing to do is to get the place performed at all. And there was a good deal of anxiety about women on stage. Uh, and there was also anxiety about young men playing women's parts on stage. The Puritan um, clerk against the theatre thought that the fact that men playing female roles and being completely engaging and seductive was itself evil and that actually playing something that you weren't was in itself wrong and persuaded people they didn't have to be straightforward, they didn't have to be innocent, they could manipulate other people by playing different roles. There was a huge amount of anxiety about it. But one of the interesting things about watching a Shakespeare play played by boys or men in the women's roles is that strangely, it seems to free the plays from gender. Uh, for example, Mark Rylance mm. uh, is a, a proper man, a middle-aged man now, 
Um, I remember seeing him play Catherine in Henry V. Completely engaging, adorable. And you had to think about the technique that did that. Um, there was no element of female impersonation, which is something I find offensive. I find most female impersonation like blackface. I just find it offensive, co-option. I can't bear it. And I live in England, and the British think that all you have to do to get a laugh is put a hat on and pretend to be a postmenopausal female. <laughs> Hardy ha ha. Um, <laughs> And there was nothing like that. He, he just... And I also saw the all-male As You Like It, which was very famous at the time. But it was again, Dick Donaldson's production. But again, yeah. the feeling was, well, suddenly we've got rid of all that stuff, that mm. other stuff, and suddenly we've got the confrontation of pure souls mm. uh, making love to each other with all the graces and all the all the power that the soul has, and whereas the body is just that thing. It's mm. the sock you put on over the soul. Um, so there are all kinds of ways of looking at that. Um, so we have, we have um, Cleopatra saying, you know, that some squeaking boy will guy her through the public streets. The fear of the impersonation. Mm. Um, and, the, and for me, the great thing about Shakespeare is you, you can impersonate when you play Shakespeare. If you were Laurence Olivier, you never did anything else. <laughs> if you were Ian McKellen, you also impersonate. Um, but when you actually play Shakespeare, you don't do that. You, you become a transparent vessel for the words, for the poetry, for the thought. And you don't gild that lily with a whole lot of... Uh, Jamaican mannerisms or what, whichever, or pretending it's Hitler or some damn thing. You don't do any of that. You just let the play exist in its own precious ambient that mm. it creates for itself. Yeah, I think there's also, uh, I've seen Mark Rylance do Olivia, say, in Twelfth Night, and that was a Declan Donald production, uh, all Russian cast, uh, all male playing Twelfth Night, and uh, again, they didn't impersonate women, but it, there was a certain delight in seeing them, the men comment on female behaviour and female mannerisms, in a sense. A bit like watching Kabuki, seeing those amazing performances playing women. There's a certain liberation in that. We're, we're not, it's, everything's playing, everything's artifice, and so we don't get sucked into that kind of Chekhovian realism. We're watching people at play, and I think that's really delightful. But there's, always, there's also the element of being feminine which is a role that you play. That you start off being female when you're a little girl. Right. You're mm. female. Then when you get to puberty, you start thinking about appropriate behaviours. And people will tell you what are appropriate behaviours. <laughs> and so you start becoming a female impersonator. I think <laughs> I wrote a book about it once. <laughs> <laughs> well, looking at... Uh, um, some of the earliest Shakespeare plays, let's take, say, the Henry VI, parts one, two, and three, there aren't many female roles. They're pretty blokey plays, all about war and civil war and so on. And the female roles in those earliest plays tend to be harridans, viragos, like uh, Tamora, Queen of the Goths, uh, Joan La Pucelle, um, Queen Margaret, even, I guess, to some extent, Kate the Shrew. Uh, now, is this Shakespeare as a young man subscribing to convention and audience expectation, or is it a sign of his own personal immaturity as a, a man and a dramatist, do you think? 
Well, um, if we take the very first, if we take the early comedies, they've always been thought of as experimental. But what nobody actually registered was that they didn't have to be repeated because the experiment was successful. So you take, if you take The Shrew, very sexy play, extraordinary, and it's this confrontation between an angry woman who hates the system and an, a man who realises, just to, as in the old folk tales, that he's got to get the spirited horse, he has to tame it. He's got to draw the spear from the stone. He has to call the hawk down out of the air. So there he is, confronted with this woman, who, and all he can think is, I need her on my side. But how do I get her on my side? Because she is so angry, and she's been played off against her younger sister, who's Miss Goody Two-Shoes, who's actually a snake. Um, <laughs> and here she is saying, you know, you make me a stale, you make me a mockery, I'm going to dance barefoot at my sister's wedding. And he's, he has to think of a way through her anger where he can actually get her to believe in him. The way that you would do if you were calming a high-mettled horse. That at one point, the horse has got to accept you as its master. So you become that composite thing, the horse man. So Petruchio has to become Mr. Kate. And it's, it's, I think it's very sexy. You know, it's the way of a, of a man with a maid what, as it says in the Bible, the way of a wave on a rock. These are the great mysteries. And the greatest mystery is the way of a man with a maid. And he's got this fiercely virginal, proud, angry girl. And he's, he's got to think of ways of short-circuiting her defence mechanisms. And it nearly fails. It, it becomes very dangerous at one point, And he could lose... And then you get the great moment where they see the old man on the road. They're going back to Padua. And he said, she says, he says, greet this woman or whatever. And she says, oh, don't be silly. Oh, she suddenly understands this is how we play the game. Mm -hmm. So she walks up and says, young, blushing virgin, pure and right. fresh and sweet. Uh, because she knows her husband's not a fool. Mm -hmm. And that marks... The big difference. Then they kiss in the street. All of this is political in terms of Puritan notions of what marriage was really to be like. After their dreadful um, parody marriage where he throws the sops in the vicar's face, where he arrives on a, on a horse that's not fit and he's got the wrong shoes and socks on. I mean, the whole thing is meant... This is what an ill-assorted marriage looks like. She's upset and offended. He says, I have to get you out of here because otherwise I can't deal with you. It's a bit like cares. You remember the when, oh, the, the, when the boy has to tame the, the hawk? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he mm. has to find a place where he and the hawk feel mm. safe when they're in charge of each other's destiny because otherwise people who think they know better will disrupt everything. But even so, it's high risk. You know, the, the hawk could fly away. The play is very unpopular. There are a lot of feminists, especially Kate's last speech. Uh, does that give you any, any food for thought? What do you think about that and her submission at the end? 
Kate's last speech is about the deal. And the deal is that this man will protect me. Now, we can't do that in the 21st century because in the 21st century, war is made against civilian populations. There's no way your husband can say, I will protect you. He can't protect you. If they send a drone into your <laughs> suburb, you're buggered whether anyone's protecting you or not. So she says, look, he will go out and fend for you. He will defend you while you lie safe at home. Uh, this, is, this is the deal. And I've accepted this deal and I will lay my hand under my husband's foot. The other wives, the widow and Bianca, have driven a much harder bargain and are going to make their husband's lives a misery. Now, as far as I can see, you know that the traffic between Catherine and Petruchio will always be honest. If she doesn't like something, she'll say so. If he doesn't like something, he'll say so. But the other two marriages are built on role-playing and deception. And what she is saying to them is, I am my husband's comrade. I am the thing in the Bible. I am the helpmeet. And this is the deal that we have. Um, as long as that deal is in some way is believable, then that works. When it's at the moment, when remember Petruchio has been a soldier, he's an older man, he's come into his own property, he hasn't fallen in love, he's done something else. He's come to find a wife. And finding a wife is a different thing. You don't and there's plenty of stuff in the in the literature of the time that warns you against marrying someone you're in love with <laughs> because the power balance will be all wrong. Mm -hmm. um, you really need to marry somebody whom you have some authority over because you're going to be pater familias. But you don't beat her. Anyone who puts a, a, a second of physical violence between Petruchio and Katharina is getting the play wrong. He avoids any suggestion of offering her violence. He offers her uh, psychological violence because he disrupts all her expectations. Is that a kind of tyranny though, psychological violence? Isn't that a kind of cruelty? He has to get her out of the place she's in. Mm -hmm. uh, you might say, if I'm, if I'm uh, taming a horse, if I'm getting a horse to come to me, to trust me, um, am I deceiving the horse? Well, the answer is not. I mean, a man took more care of his horse in the 16th century than he did of his wife. <laughs> he took more care of his hawk. And all these images are incorporated mm. in the play. It's as if she's a wild creature and he has to tame her. He has to tame her. He has to get her to trust him and to come within his reach. Then they can have intimacy, but otherwise they can't. It's an extraordinary play. It's amazing. And I think when it's, when it's done properly, and you've got to, I think you need the framing device mm -hmm. uh, because you need poor old, what's his name? Christopher Sly, yeah. Christopher Sly saying things like, what shall I call her? Felicity, madam, or Sicily, madam, or Joan, madam. You know, what's her name? Mm. Well, the upper classes don't care. Her name is my lady. Mm. And he says, you know, sit by me because um, that we shall ne'er be younger. Let's just hang out, watch the play, have some fun. Uh, so you have that working class notion. And, and a man in Shakespeare's English couldn't survive 
without a wife because he come home to a cold house, he come home to no food. You, a, a family involved two adults working all their waking hours just to make it tick over. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's all part of it, that, you know, you've got to be, give each other a break. You have to bear with people being ugly or being ill or being disabled or whatever, that this was for keeps, this relationship. It wasn't to do with immediate advantage and still less with lust. Yeah. Let's come back to marriage a bit later, but the next phase of the, the comedies, we have all these women dressing as men, getting into male drag. Now, that's more surely than just a plot device or a convenience because they were male actors. What's it really about? Um, Rosalind, Viola, Imogen, um, who else is there? Uh, Portia. Get into male costume. What does that do for them? What is the, what's that saying? <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, interestingly, if you start off the play as a female character, you're wearing your stomacher, your wooden stomacher, <clears throat> which gives you uh, a chest that is just a, a kind of bulwark. <laughs> then you've got this stiff skirt. Mm-hmm. So you've got no nether quarters at all. When you play a boy, off comes the skirt. So you're stripping. You're not adding something. You're actually taking something away. And what emerges from that is the boy. Uh, a, A human figure, but without anything that we would think of as a secondary sexual characteristic which uh, here you are, you're the producer, the director, and I'm thinking, okay, so we've got Ganymede. Has he got a codpiece? Would you equip him with a codpiece or would you think this is a step too far? (laughs) Actually equipping him with uh, what would be a kind of pasteboard imitation of an erect penis... Would this be a smart move? And I think, actually, you'd probably think that it wasn't. Probably not, no. Mainly because, <laughs> mainly because the audiences would get all over Distracted, it. yes. Well, they, <laughs> but they'd also get anxious. <laughs> it would be kind of weird. Um, now, we all know that the person playing uh, any of these parts is a boy. Um, and... There, but we also know that once you're wearing your farthingale with your f- fingertips on your skirt, you're confined by that and by other people's expectations of what you can and cannot do. So one of the things that happens when you cast aside the farthingale is you sort of leap forward and you're a human being. <laughs> as you were not before. And one of the, it, the really interesting thing in these plays is what happens at the end uh, when Rosalind it, is suddenly dressed again in her farthingale and she's suddenly muted and immobilised. Um, I don't want to stress that too much. I don't want to make a huge thing of it. Um, but there's Shakespeare's way of dealing with being female is so interesting. If you think of Sylvia and the two gentlemen, mm. 
There is Sylvia, you know, who is Sylvia? What is she that all our swains commend her? Holy, fair and wise is she. And she is the, the megastar of the court at Millen, as we have to say. Um, and there she is and all the young men are in love with her. But are they really in love with her or in love with her image, her, her role in the court? Uh, what makes the difference is Sylvia's preference. And she's the one who chooses her lover, who, who chooses Valentine. Uh, but Proteus, being Valentine's virtual twin, has to fall in love with her. Then Valentine runs away from the court because they're betrayed. Uh, Proteus follows. Sylvia's in the forest. Proteus, first of all, uh, Proteus tries to rape Sylvia, which is pretty bad news for from every point of view, for Elizabethans as well as for us. But then the weird thing that happens is that when Valentine hears of this, he gives Sylvia to his friend. And the play is about the, the um, conflict between male friendship, which is love, same thing, uh, and the commitment of a man to the woman he's going to marry. And they don't fit. They don't actually jive together. So Valentine gives Sylvia to Proteus. Then it all gets sorted out because Julia actually says, hang on, it's me and I'm his girlfriend and I've, she faints and <laughs> they undo her doublet and good heavens, there's a breast inside, uh, all of that. Um, but if you think of that last scene of that play, Sylvia is speechless. She says absolutely nothing. Now, if you write about that for a Cambridge PhD thesis, as I did, um, and you try to point out that having a character on the stage who is not speaking is very powerful in any theatre. She's been the, the pivot of the plot. Then suddenly there she is, and she's been drained of energy. She's been rendered dumb. And you have to think, what is Shakespeare really thinking about here? Because it's not something that a dramatist does without thinking. Think how important Horatio is in Hamlet. Horatio is the impersonation of the audience. He's entirely important to Hamlet. He's the only person Hamlet can really talk to. Mm. And he stands for all those people out there. So there is Sylvia, speechless. She's been, first of all, given to a man she doesn't love, who's just tried to rape her, by the man she does love. And it just hangs like a huge question mark over the play. Now, you could say the play is not a success because the ending is so troublesome. But this is my point exactly, that Shakespeare undoes the play just as he undoes Love's Labour's Lost. In Love's Labour's Lost, he chucks the whole play out and you, have to, you end up playing a different play. <laughs> I mean, he is the most adventurous dramatist who ever lived. And that's because he leaves these gaps that the audience has to fill. The audience has to go home thinking, what have I just seen? What happened there with Sylvia? What have I just seen? And it also means that the actors can fill the gaps in all kinds of different ways. It gives actors unparalleled scape, scope to develop and 
elaborate the characters because the play allows it. But are you saying then that he allows the women a little bit of freedom, getting into male drag and running into the forest, but then they're always brought back and have to get back into their, their farthingale again and they're stuck back in this um, repressive society? Is that what it's about? Yes, but it's important that you... As far as I'm concerned, it's not Shakespeare that makes them do this. Right. This is what they're going to have to do anyway. <clears throat> that the bit that Shakespeare provides is the, the glance askance, the glance that says... This is not the way it ought to be. Right. Uh, I mean, in, Sh in Shakespeare's Engl England, especially in Stratford, you know, there's a whole school of thought that want to tell you he didn't come from Stratford, he's the, the Earl of Oxford, he's whoever. Um, he's a, a university graduate. No, he isn't. He would have bought, written dreadful plays if he had been. <laughs> um, <laughs> that he really comes from a world where a man without a woman working alongside him and working really hard, no matter what it is that he does, she's got to keep the, if, if anything, she keeps the books. She keeps note of what their indebtedness is. She runs the business. Supposing he's a, a sailor or a merchant or a traveller or whatever. Um, and he can't really survive without her. And that means they have to talk turkey. It's not always playing games, it's not always sex games. It's to do with actually trusting each other and speaking to each other honestly, truthfully, with the full personality present. Where you got, get women who play the flirtatious game, like Cressida, they turn out to be rotten. They turn out to be blown hollow. There's nothing there. They can't be relied upon, um, they We'll blame other people. It'll be, you know, look what you made me do. Mm -hmm. Shakespeare's heroines take responsibility for their own actions. They're, now, fully, they're full human beings, but it's quite clear that being a woman involves restrictions on your capacity to act. This, this takes us into your book then about Shakespeare's wife, a biography of Anne Hathaway, which is, of course, largely conjecture, surmise, although I must say the research and the... Uh, scholarship is, is formidable. Uh, it's an astonishing book. Um, for those who haven't read it, and you all should read it, can you just give us a thumbnail sketch of how you imagine Anne Hathaway, what, you know, and what you base that on, why you had to write the book? Well, um, first of all, it was clear to me that Shakespeare was a champion of marriage. Um, you have to remember that most of the comedy of the time whether it's from Europe or from the Latin comedy or whatever, is about adultery. It's about escapades. It's about young men stealing young wives from old husbands and so on. And the Comedia dell'arte goes on with that, the, yeah. the great adultery game. Um, what's going on, though, at that time is that the church had always placed disabilities on marriage. Marriage was inferior to virginity and to the celibacy of the clergy. Um, that was the sort of Catholic position and, pro and still is the Catholic position. Um, but the whole point about what happened in the 16th century in Northern Europe is that 
it began to appear to people this was completely unreasonable, that God had created Adam and Eve, he'd married them in paradise. There's no evidence in the Bible that he did marry them in paradise, but there they were, um, and they were clearly, the paradigm was heterosexual, um, and then they went and founded the human race. Um, <laughs> and so you have this attempt to uh, restore marriage in... Um, the common appreciation. They didn't really have to do it with real people who knew pretty much what marriage was about, but it was to, to do more with official attitudes and, and um, the kind of theological approach to marriage, that marriage, you better to marry than to burn. Well, thank you, St. Paul. Uh, <laughs> meaning to burn with lust. But it's more complicated than that because a husband who approached his wife in a lustful way, was treating her as a concubine, as a prostitute. He was supposed to approach his wife in a spirit of reverence. And they, they didn't sort of rip off all their clothes and go skipping about the fire. Um, <laughs> she came to him in her shift. And her shift was itself evidence of her purity and modesty. So you have that argument goes on all the way through Shakespeare. So that if a wife does show lust, the husband then becomes panic-stricken that she's interested in other men and that he can't control her. There is this notion that there is a power of, of libido in women which could be incredibly destructive. But women themselves keep it under control. But this goes on all through the plays. There's all those husbands who, can, who believe so quickly that their wives are at it. Mm. Um, and all those women who give their hearts in simplicity and who are obviously highly sexed, who tell you that they have already seen the boy wrestler and they've already got their eye on him and then that when they tell him that they love him, that's it. It's a pact. It's done. They won't suddenly, unless they're Cressida, decide it's someone else. So you've got you've got a real engagement with the question of what kind of relationship is marriage? How do we make it work? And Shakespeare's quite clear that sex is an important part of it, but if it becomes overwhelming, then the marriage itself becomes prey to fantasy. I mean, the way I see um, Cleopatra, Antony and Cleopatra, is that they are both aging, and they're playing sex games. It's 50 shades of grey. <laughs> and they're hooked on it, both of them. But the result will be tragedy. Mm. But what makes the difference is that it becomes heroic because they both die for it. That suddenly changes everything. But this is the way Shakespeare takes you through a play. He shifts the goalposts all the time. Just when you think you've understood what, what he's driving at, suddenly the next scene... Completely different. You have to incorporate a whole lot of other ideas. You've got to think in the theatre with Shakespeare. Mm. You can't just be carried away. You can't just be identified. I mean, it's, it's Brecht, in a sense. You know, alienation there all the time. Yeah. All the time thinking, do I believe this? I don't quite believe this. Is he lying? Is he telling the truth? Um, which is how you play a game with someone like Hamlet, who keeps saying, I have that within which passes the show. And the audience can't say, you're an actor. You can't have anything within that passes the show. <laughs> He's saying, yes, I do. No matter what I do now, you have to believe in me. You stop believing in me, you're lost. 
The play will make no sense to you at all. He plays with all of that. I mean, he's the most consummate dramatist because of that, because he understands the theatrical situation, which is why making movies doesn't work, making TV doesn't work. It's, in the end, you have to be there, and you have to be using the scepticism and the alienation and the fascination of a real audience. So back to the marriage uh, and Anne Hathaway. Um, do you oh, think sorry, I forgot yeah, all about right. <laughs> that. That was fascinating digression, I loved it. But, um, all right, uh, well, what do I, I think Anne Hathaway, I don't think, I know, uh, was eight years older yep. than Shakespeare. Uh, her father was uh, a reasonably well-established farmer. He wasn't rich. Um, I don't know who her mother was, and that's a bit important. Um, the Hathaways farmed in the Arden, uh, which is the, the poorer part of Stratford. Um, her mother may have been Welsh. There's quite a lot of intermarriage between the Welsh and the Stratfordians. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the Rother market, the cattle market, was mostly Welsh cattle. It was sold in Stratford. Um, but her father um, left all of his children 10 marks for a, a, a marriage portion, which is not quite the same thing as a dowry because both partners bring the portion. And this is how they start their housekeeping together. Is 10 marks worth a lot? Uh, well, it's six pounds, three and fourpence. <laughs> um, but it was probably enough to buy a cottage. Oh. Mind you, the cottage was no great shakes. I mean, it, <laughs> it had two rooms. It had a, 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 a solar or a soffit, an upper room, and it had the room where the fireplace was. Um, you probably stored things in the upper room, slept in the lower room, um, but Shakespeare didn't have a dowry. Shakespeare had nothing. I mean, Shakespeare's family was a, a complete bust. So the person who took a risk with his 18-year-old boy was Anne, and I think that she could read. Why do I think she could read? Because she's a Puritan. And the most important, her whole family were, well, the family was split on religious lines, which itself is not surprising. But the, the most important thing for Puritans and for Protestant reformers in the period is the Bible. Mm. Salvation came in the form of a book. So everybody learnt to read. They didn't learn to write. It wasn't necessary. What did they have to say? <laughs> what they were supposed to be doing was learning what it said in the Bible. But if you, read, if you read the Bible every day, and if you read the Bible the way it was read in the 16th century, what did you read? You read the Psalms. You read the Psalms every day. And they are wonderful poetry. And if you, want, if you really want to get into the way Shakespeare sees dialogue, and internal monologue and all of that, look at the Psalms, it's all there. It's the man arguing with God, upbraiding God, uh, despairing of God's attention. It's this constant dialogue between the creature and the creator. Extraordinary stuff to read. And you can't read it every day and not develop a certain understanding of the dimension of great poetry. So here she is this young woman, she's not in uh, Stratford. 
she's, um, she's somewhere else. And we don't actually know where she was. The assumption is that she's kind of lying around Stratford in various poses of disarray. <laughs> and along comes, along comes this 18-year-old boy and she somehow sucks him into her, her grasp. But she's almost certainly not there. And she's not in shottery either. Now, why do I say that? Because in this period, you didn't, it wasn't Jane Austen, you didn't keep your feet under your father's table till you found a husband. You went to work. You were sent out to work. Um, and you would work in your father's house as long as there was a job to do, the laundry or looking after smaller children or look, making cheese, looking after animals and so on. But the household she came from in Shottery already had its complement of people to do this. So she was almost certainly sent out to work. So at what stage is this 18-year-old boy? <laughs> now, the funny thing is that all my, all my colleagues in the English establishment like to think of him as a lovely public school boy um, <laughs> whom they have to protect from voracious women. <laughs> They don't have to protect him from their voracious selves because that won't do him any harm at all. A bit of slap and tickle, fine. Um, so they see this lovely boy skipping along the lanes of Stratford. Hello, trees. Hello, sky. And there is this wretched woman who snares him and <laughs> I'm actually quoting uh, Muriel Bradbrook when I say this, gets herself pregnant. <laughs> now, of course, she didn't get herself pregnant. <laughs> but my view of the matter is that the person who's the problem here is Shakespeare. His parents were ruined by this stage. His father's risky dealings in wool, which was a, a royal monopoly, had meant that he had huge problems. He had huge fines to pay and no money to pay them with. Um, and he literally had no expectations. They say, oh, he must have gone to the grammar school. Well, there's no evidence that he did. And there's no evidence that he didn't. Um, so here is this young man, and there is Anne, who's actually well set up. She's in line to marry a neighbour's son from Shottery. It, this would be what you would expect. Uh, but it isn't what happens. What happens is that she and Shakespeare, after her father's death, um, cannot get married, partly because her father's um, executors uh, won't, won't do it. They're not going to marry her to this boy with no expectations. That is, and he's a boy. It's not going to happen. Now, people say, well, you know, what did Shakespeare have to attract her with? And I think, isn't it? I mean... <laughs> no, 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 I don't want to be too obvious, but he is a, he is a poet. <laughs> so maybe it was poetry. Maybe she really loved the things that he wrote, the things they read together, or, or what. How did he seduce her? Because he's the winner here. He gets himself a decent wife. He had no expectations at all. And gets her at 18, gets out of the house, which seems to have been a bit of a madhouse by that stage. Um, and I think that the pregnancy was a way of making it happen. 
And that's not very unusual. If you think of the Earl of Southampton, who's supposed to be in Shakespeare's boyfriend, which is ridiculous, because if anybody had thought he was Shakespeare's boyfriend, Shakespeare's throat would have been cut. <laughs> There's no way a nobleman of that rank would allow uh, an understanding of that kind to be abroad. He wouldn't even toy with it. It would be called scandalum magnatum. You could not say things like that about a man of Southampton's rank. Now, what did Southampton do? Southampton couldn't marry uh, because the woman he was in love with was a, a lady-in-waiting of Queen Elizabeth. The only way they could get married was by forcing the issue so she was pregnant. The Queen threw them both into the tower and was prepared to perform all sorts of revenge on them for making a mockery of her court and her virginal maids of honour and so on. So forcing the issue so you can be married and be husband and wife by establishing a pregnancy was not that unusual. About one third of the women who were married in the Church of the Holy Trinity in Stratford at that time had a baby within, some within three months. And the idea that if she showed it would be a great shame is just nonsense. Very hard to show in a wooden stomacher for a start. <laughs> Um, and it, it, there was no shame involved in it at all, except, of course, that it was only discovered by the Victorian uh, bardolators in the 19th century, and they were shocked to the core. Premarital pregnancy, goodness me. And as for doing any proper social history and reading parish registers, which isn't that hard, you want to find out who got married when and when they baptised babies, read the parish registers. It's easy. You'd be astonished if you knew just how few people have ever tried to do it. I mean, I did it. And the other day I realised I'd forgotten them and I have to go and do it again. Um, but it is amazing because you, you ask yourself questions. You think, was it a... What, uh, I still don't know why they needed a special licence to be married. Because they didn't need to get married when they did. They could have delayed it another three months and they wouldn't have had to sign this bond, which was for an enormous amount of money. It was 50 pounds or something, uh, which is more than the price of a cottage. But they entered into this bond, and I still don't understand why. There's more that we need to know about this. Um, but I think that he... We, everyone wants us to think, oh, all my male colleagues, I mean, want us to believe that she trapped him, that he hated it, and he ran away as soon as he could. That's not true either. I mean, they had their first child and then they had a second child. He was still with her then. He, well, we don't actually know if he was there at the time of the birth of the children, of the twins, but I can tell you that if he had in fact left her against her will, all she had to do was go to the vicar's court and say, my husband has abandoned me and I'm pregnant and they, he would have been a fugitive from justice. They would have sent out people looking for him because the town council of Stratford didn't want to keep her children and her. He had a responsibility to keep her. Well, that didn't happen. No one went looking for him. Uh, there was no complaint made to the vicar's court. There is nothing in the ecclesiastical records. So we have to think that at some point she said... Will, you need to go away. You need to go to London and you need to find someone who's interested in your poetry because that's all we've got. 
I think she became a businesswoman. There's no doubt about that, really, because the evidence is there. Um, and she kept them in the family in reasonable shape. But it is extraordinary to think of. She gave birth in the dead of winter to twins. And I think one of them, Hamnet, was carrying a birth injury. Um, twin confinements are dangerous. They're dangerous now, but they were more dangerous then. If he was the second born and starved of oxygen, um, then that would explain why he hung on until adolescence and he died when he was 12. Um, but you think of her establishing breastfeeding for two babies uh, when she's got a toddler as well. And you think, this is not a woman that we can treat with contempt. This is a woman who's, who's capable and courageous and independent. Um, and I think she is, in a way, the model for Shakespeare's capable women, was the one he had at home, about whom he may very well have felt guilty. You know, because he's a young man going to London, there's all kinds of attractions everywhere. I think he probably did get syphilis. It was par for the course. Um, and that he probably felt guilty about that too. I don't think she swerved from her bargain. But I always think of her as silent, not a woman of few words. Um, not people said that I created an Anne Hathaway in my own likeness. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I'm a bolter and, sh and she's a stayer, absolute stayer. Um, but I also think, and the most outrageous thing I think, I'm thinking, who would have put together all those plays to have them published as the first folio? Because they'd all been edited by somebody, not very well. Uh, so somebody had made a package to give to a publisher. We know who the publisher was, it's Hemmings and Condell. I, I think, who would have done it? Who had the money and the nows to do it? And I think it's got to be her. And she's the one who, said, who thinks, you know, these plays have cost my family a lot. They've cost me a lot. I had a cold bed for years and years. I was a, a grass widow while he was in London. And then all those other things happened in London, those other relationships and so on. And I'm not going to let these plays disappear. And by the time the folio is published, Shakespeare's not being played anymore. It's Beaumont and Fletcher. He's, he's old hat, no one does it anymore. Um, only Macbeth, because James I had a particular... Um, he quite liked Macbeth, what was being a, a Scottish king and all, uh, except not, one hopes, um, that would have been murdered in, his, in Macbeth's castle. But I think she is still, I think, the most likely person to have put together that package, which was published in the year she died. Um, I'm very happy to be refuted. I'm very happy to be uh, told that I'm completely wrong. But one of the interesting things is, you know, that Hathaways went to America. They are amongst the Pilgrim Fathers. And um, what's his name? Warren Buffett? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is the head of a company called something or other Hathaway. Now, that is a really old American company that goes right back to the 17th century. Uh, so that there is an American strain to this story. 
And I keep thinking that someone will come out of America with the money to do the work and actually find Anne Hathaway's mother. When I found Anne Hathaway's mother, I'll rest easy in my grave. (laughs) But until then, I don't think I will. I think she's really important. Not because of any great intimacy between her and Shakespeare, but I think she was, as someone else has written, another woman scholar has written, I think she was his rock. She was always there. She might have been disapproving. She might have been um, repressive with him. But I think she nursed him in his last illness. And she was true to her bargain, true to her bond. The way Shakespeare's great heroines are true to their bond. And she maybe did something wild and, and foolish when she married an 18-year-old boy. But she was true to that bargain in a way that her boy probably wasn't. And I think he felt that, that he had not been equal to the challenge that she represented. I like to think that she, she read the plays or that he read them to her and she maybe laughed or maybe frowned. Um, I imagine what it was like in Stratford, you know, with Thomas Green, the town clerk, who was from the Middle Temple, was a lawyer, saying, uh, him saying to her, oh, you know, his, uh, his sonnets have caused a good deal of, of alarm and interest in London, and putting the book in her hand, and her thinking, I don't want to look at it. But one of the sonnets, at least, is addressed to her. So we're just at the beginning here because no one's ever looked at the wife of Shakespeare, but we'll find her. The veil is getting thinner. And when we find out who her mother is and what her own culture is from her own family, then we'll have a better idea of how this works. Jermaine, I think we've got time for just one more. Oh, sorry. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) I wish we could have two hours of this. It'd be lovely, but we haven't. I just want to conclude with this, uh, a quote from your book, 1986, Shakespeare, and you say, as long as Shakespeare remains central to English cultural life, it will retain the values which make it unique in the world, namely tolerance, pluralism, the talent for viable compromise, and a profound commitment to that most wasteful form of social organisation, democracy. Mm -hmm. 30 years later, do you stand by that? Absolutely. In fact, I can put it more succinctly now, (laughs) which is to say that it's Shakespeare that keeps the British sane. (laughs) (laughs) Because he doesn't allow easy certainties, he doesn't allow ideological uh, fixations, Uh, everything is deconstructed. Just when you think you've understood the divine right of kings or something. And if you take a play like King John, not very often performed, it is the most astonishing play. I mean, it could have been written by Beckett. (laughs) It's so mad because uh, you realise when you're watching the play that actually a king is less than a man because a king is an image. He's a, he's, um, a symbol of something or other 
and he can never tell the truth. He always has to speak as the symbol that he is. These royal fronts of kings. So they're like playing cards. And uh, you, you end up in extraordinary scenes where um, the, the audience becomes the town that is about to be sacked. And the citizen says, you know, um, do you realise that they're coming and you'll all be killed? You've got to think of a way of placating them. Uh, the best descriptions of warfare, of the horses dying. I mean, it's before war horse. Mm. Now there's Shakespeare talking about them, their hoofs kicking at the sky. Um, amazing. Um, and the soldiers, you know, we know now, we, well, we're coming up to the abomination that is Gallipoli, but we're aware that more people died even at Gallipoli of typhus than died of enemy action. And there's Shakespeare talking about these, these men who were ghostly, who were riven by disease and who were having to fight an enemy uh, which is fresher, younger and fitter than they are. And where's the justice here? How can this make sense? Um, we don't know if he was ever a foot soldier but he certainly understood the lunacy of it, mm. the wrongness of it. Um, he's, he's, al he's always going to be the best. <laughs> and one of, one of the good things about my life is I've been allowed to teach the best. Now, I didn't have to teach a whole lot of other stuff and then get to do Shakespeare every now and then. I could do Shakespeare four times a day. <laughs> and the thing about doing Shakespeare four times a day is that you can. Mm. Jermaine, I think our time is up. Can I say it's been a great honour and a great pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having time with us.